Good morning and Merry Christmas. We are glad you're here today, Southbridge, and uh, welcome if you're in Theater 14. We're glad that you're able to come and worship with us together today. If you're a guest with us, I want to give you a special hello. Thank you so much for coming and uh, checking out the church today. We had a guest in the first service I found I'm actually related to. That was interesting. That has never happened before. Um, but uh, I don't know what brought you here today and uh, why it is you decided to come check out this church, but we're glad that you came and uh, checking us out for whatever reason. And so thanks and welcome. I hope you feel loved by the people that you bump into, whether it's in the children's ministry or at the front door or whatever it is. But uh, one thing we ask you to do, if you wouldn't mind, in the worship program, there's a little card. We call it a connection card. It's attached on your worship program there. Um, if you wouldn't mind filling that out, if you've got a prayer request, it's a great place to tell us that. But really what we, we want to know if you're new is how the world did you hear about us as a church? Because we want to invite other people to come. So if you could tell us that, that'd be a blessing beyond what you probably realize. And if you turn that card in at the first time guest kiosk, we've got a gift to give you. And it's just on your way outside the front doors this morning. We've got a gift to give you. We also are going to make a donation to a ministry, and you can read about that in your worship program, as well as some of the other things that are happening. This Wednesday is our Christmas Eve service. I hope you have tickets for that. If you don't, we still have some available for both services in the video venue, and so you're welcome to come and uh, be a part of it that way. Maybe some tickets will get given back um, in the live venue. Somebody gets sick or whatever at the end, and uh, turn your tickets back in, please, if you are not going to be using them. So um, we're going to continue today in our Tis the Season series we've done so far. Uh, three parts. The first week we did Tis the Season for anticipation as we anticipated Christmas. And then last week we talked about Tis the Season to pursue God's peace. And today we're talking about Tis the Season for God's presence. We just sang about God's presence. You think about God's presence. It's in every Christmas story. Today we're going to look at a passage of scripture that talks about how he is Emmanuel, God with us in Matthew chapter 1. And so if you have a Bible, you can go ahead and turn there right now or, or get there ahead of time. I'm going to pray for us. And uh, we'll jump into the, the message this morning. Let me pray. Father, thank you so much that we get to open your word. Thank you that you came to dwell among us, that you became God in the flesh, that you would give your son the most precious gift that any of us could ever receive, your son, Jesus Christ. And Father, I pray that if there's any here who don't know your son, Jesus, as their savior, that today would be the day that they would come to know him. And God, I pray that you would transform this Christmas, unlike you've transformed any other Christmas for them, and they would come to know you and know what it is for you to be with them. And Father, I pray for those of us who are followers of yours, that are walking with you, that you would challenge us and change us and encourage us through your word this morning, and help us to sense your presence in this place, and help us to realize what your presence means to us. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. Today, tis the season for God's presence. Matthew chapter 1, if you want to turn there, verses 18 to 25 is where we're going to be. But as you're doing that, as you're turning there, just think about presence and how presence makes a difference. Different people being present changes how we behave, the things that we do. I was talking about the first service about on the way to church this morning. If you're on your way to church and you're driving and you see a police car, that changes how you behave. You don't even have to be speeding. I'll just be candid with you. If I'm driving, hypothetical situation, I could be driving five miles below the speed limit, which is very hypothetical, but anyway, uh, I could be driving five miles below the speed limit and I see a police car, I'm slowing down. I don't know why, just the fact they're there, I just, it's just instinctual, I slow down. The other day I was driving my car down Capitol Boulevard and a police car pulled up behind me and I got nervous. Why am I nervous? I'm not on like some top 10 wanted list or anything. Like I'm, I'm like triple head checking. I'm trying to make lane change. I'm trying to just get out of, you go ahead and proceed. Like don't be behind me any longer. I don't like this. His presence made a difference. It's not just police though. Think through your life and different people. When they're around, you act different than when they're not around. Um, if you're a guy, you know, if it's just the guys, you act different than when the ladies are around. So ladies, this might be news to you. This is our best behavior. Okay, this, is, that's, that, this is what we got, okay? So suck in your bellies, guys. Ask for which way is the weight room. Whatever you're going to do. 
The ladies around, we behave differently. Ladies, I'm sure you behave the same way when guys are around and when guys aren't around. Totally understand that. But we are different because of your presence. If you were in the presence of royalty, if you were in the presence of a president, if you were in the presence of a king or a queen, you would act differently. People's presence makes a difference. I was just thinking about this week, it being Christmas time, and uh, re- reflecting back on one time that I shared a story with our church and that Christmas Eve service was actually 2011. And uh, this Christmas Eve service is coming up this Wednesday. Our kids come to the Christmas Eve service. For those of you who are new to Southbridge, it's totally cool to bring your kids. I have four children, and nothing your kids are going to do during the service is going to surprise me or be different than anything that happens in my house. Okay, so they can run up on stage, climb on me, make noises. It doesn't matter. I'll be totally fine. You'll be totally fine. We'll all survive the experience. But what happens is sometimes I forget which kids are present. And in 2011, my wife brought our kids to the Christmas Eve service. I was preaching, and I shared a story about when I was a kid that if I had known my kids were there, I wouldn't have shared. And the story was about when I was a kid. And so just to give you some context, when I was a kid, I was always on the naughty list. It didn't matter if it was Christmas or not. I was just on the naughty list. Like, I was a bad kid. And I wasn't even that good at being a bad kid. I'd get caught being a bad kid all the time. And one time, my mom, I was about eight, nine years old, my mom left the house, and uh, I was home alone, and I was home alone for just a little bit, and I went sneaking to find Christmas presents. And she had the Christmas presents in her closet. I dug through the closet. I found the coolest remote control car. I was so excited I was going to get it. I wasn't very street smart. So I went and I called my dad on a telephone. I guess not a, tel- not a cell phone. Like I was t- attached to the wall and it had wires in it. That's how old I am. And so I grabbed this phone off the wall. I call my dad up. I say, Dad, if I get a remote control car for Christmas, like totally hypothetical, right? Like he's not going to figure this out. Can we build a track in the backyard? Well, my dad was with my mom. I didn't know that. My mom comes home. The rules have changed now from when I was a kid. But it was bad for me. I'll just share that detail. Won't get my mom in trouble. But that was about 30 years ago, and I still remember that day. We'll just put it that way. It was not a good experience. I share that story with our church at Christmas Eve service, talking about anticipation and some of those types of things. Uh, Then a year later, 2012, I'm tucking my oldest daughter in for bed, and she says, Dad, remember that story about you in the remote control car? And it was not even on my mind. I was like, no, what are you talking about? She goes, you snuck and you found your presence? Oh, yeah, I remember that story. She goes, you and mom are really good at hiding presents. Like, what? And now every year since then, now, we, now hiding presents at our house is like a search and find mission. So mom and I are just hiding. We're not going to tell our space. We've got a spot we don't think that they've seen. But their presence at that service should have changed what I said. My mom's not being present changed how I behaved. You being here today changes the different things that I'll say. I'll say different things this service than I said the first service. Every service at Southbridge, I know there are people that don't follow Jesus as their Savior, and that changes what I say. I'll give people opportunities to start a relationship with Jesus, even though I know there are a lot of people who already have. So your presence makes a difference. I know that the majority of people who are attending Southbridge on a regular basis claim to be, at least, followers of Jesus Christ. That changes what I say. Your presence makes a difference. People's presence make a difference in our lives. But the greatest difference maker is God. And the Christmas story is a story of how he came to be present with us. And so today I want you to think to yourself, what does that mean to me? What does his presence mean to you? Not just this day, a long time ago when he was born, laid in a manger, angels came. What does his presence mean to you today? And that's what we're going to talk about in Matthew chapter 1. If you have your Bibles, hopefully you've gotten there already. Matthew chapter 1. What's going on in the Gospel of Matthew, the very first book in the New Testament, Matthew, Mark, Luke, John. Um, is 
that Matthew, who's a follower of Jesus, is writing down an account of what it was like for God to be present on this earth in the flesh in the person of Jesus Christ, who is fully God and fully man. Matthew tells us the story from the perspective of Joseph. In the first couple of weeks, we've been in the Gospel of Luke. Luke tells the story from the perspective of Mary. In both Gospels, we get a genealogy of Jesus. In Luke, it comes through the line of Mary. In Luke chapter 3, we hadn't gotten there yet. And in Matthew, in Matthew chapter 1, it comes through the line of Joseph, Jesus' legal father. Not his birth father, but his adoptive father. And both genealogies show us that Jesus is the rightful son of David. He's in the comes through the line of David, which is really significant when you look at the Old Testament prophecies about who the Messiah is going to be. And they're being fulfilled in Jesus. In the first 17 verses, we get his earthly genealogy. In verses 18 through 25, we really get his divine genealogy, that he's the son of God. And here's how it gets announced to a man named Joseph. If you have your Bibles, Matthew chapter 1, verse 18, we'll start reading. This is how the birth of Jesus came about. His mother Mary, who we met a couple weeks ago in Luke chapter 1, was pledged, or we talked about betrothed, to be married to Joseph. But before they came together, she was found to be with child through the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit was the one who did this work. Remember, there was no man needed. This is the virgin birth. And there was more description of this in Luke than there is here in Matthew. The Holy Spirit will overshadow you. The power of the Most High will come upon you. There's nothing sexual taking place. The same Holy Spirit we read about in Genesis chapter 1 that was part of creation, creating out of nothing, puts God in the flesh in your womb. Mary, no man is necessary. She says, well, how does this happen? How can that be? And the Holy Spirit, the angel says, can do the impossible. You believe that? He does the impossible. She will be pregnant. She will be found to be a child through the Holy Spirit. Verse 19, because Joseph, so now we meet Joseph the first time. Her husband, but they were just pledged to be married. We'll talk about that. Was a righteous man. Didn't mean he never sinned. It meant that he tried to do what was right according to the law. Didn't want to expose her to public disgrace. He had in mind his idea, his thoughts. He wasn't hasty in making a decision. He was thinking through this. He had in mind to divorce her quietly. It's one of his options. But after he had considered this, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream and said, Joseph, son of David, do not be afraid to take Mary home as your wife, because what is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She will give birth to a son. Now, I joked the first week that they didn't have ultrasounds. And so this was big news, just that you're having a boy. It's going to be a boy. And I ended up bumping into a guy. We were Christmas shopping, and uh, guys just talked to each other. And we don't even have to get each other's names, but I met this guy at the store, and we're just talking to each other and talking about kids. And he was old enough to be my dad. And he was telling me about how when they had their kids, they had three boys. We have four girls. So we were kind of talking through some of that. And uh, he said when they were having their kids, the first child they had, he wasn't even allowed to go into the delivery room. So he told me what that was like. He was kind of waiting for the news. And he didn't know if it was going to be a boy or a girl, what was going to happen. And then their second pregnancy, they didn't know that they were pregnant for twins. They found out in the delivery room. And he told me what happened was, he said, I got to come in that time. It was about three years later. I think it was 1973, 75, some of that range. He said, I came into the delivery room. And uh, my wife delivers the first baby, and it's a boy. So we were hoping for a girl, but, you know, it was a boy, so great to have a child and excited about all that. And then the doctor said, I think there's another baby in here. And he said, I just kind of looked at him like, and you're crazy. And then the nurse said, he's just joking. And so everything's like, oh, no, 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 doctor's being weird at this moment or whatever. And uh, the doctor said, no, there's another baby in here. And she delivered another baby, right, at that moment. Another boy, by the way, at that moment. And he was talking about how shocked he was. And I was thinking about that guy when I read this passage and thought to myself, how shocked was Joseph? 
You're having a son. Oh, you didn't have anything to do with it, by the way. The Holy Spirit's impregnated your wife, and you're having a son. How shocking was that? And then go on. Next part of this passage. And you are to give him the name Jesus. You're going to be his legal father. That's what's being said here. Because you get the naming rights. You're to give him the name Jesus. And here's why. Because he will save his people from their sins. That's why the name Jesus. Verse 27. All this took place to fulfill what the Lord had said through the prophet. The prophet being referred to as Isaiah. This was talked about 700 years prior to it happening. In Isaiah chapter 7 and verse 14. Exactly the way that it's happening. Here's the verse. Isaiah 7 14. Which is the verse, verse 23 here. The virgin will be with child and will give birth to a son and they will call him Emmanuel. And Matthew tells us what it means, which means God with us. He's present. Verse 24, when Joseph woke up, he did what the angel of the Lord had commanded him and took Mary home as his wife, but he had no union with her until she gave birth to a son and he gave him the name Jesus. Here, this whole passage builds to the climax that he's Emmanuel, God with us. But we get two titles. The first title is Jesus. It's the name that he'll be given, and his name tells us what he will do. He will save his people from, his sins, from their sins. Emmanuel tells us who he is. He is God, and he is with us, present. But what does that mean for us? If you think through the Christmas stories that we've talked about over the last three weeks, Every one of them has been a story of God's presence. The Christmas story is a, pre- a story of God coming to be with us. There's, think about last week. There are shepherds keeping watch over their fields by night. And then an angel of the Lord comes to them, and the glory of the Lord shone around them. And we talked about that glory. Well, that's the glory of God that we see throughout the Bible. That's a light that's so bright you can't look into it. It's like the sun. In fact, it's so bright, Revelation tells us that there won't be a need in heaven. There won't be a need for the sun or the moon, but the glory of God will light the place. And so the glory of God shows up. That's God's presence. That was in Luke chapter 2. Luke chapter 1, we talked about the story of Mary and how Mary gets the birth announcement. And, and greetings, Mary, you who are greatly graced. And then the promise, the Lord is with you. It's his presence throughout the story. And then here today, Joseph, you're gonna, your wife's going to have a son. And uh, you're going to name him Jesus. He's Emmanuel, which means God's with you, Joseph. He's with all of us. But what does that mean for Joseph? What does that mean for you? What does that mean for me? What does it mean that God is present? Because God's omnipresent. He's everywhere all the time. And that's true for everyone. That's not what we're talking about today. We're talking today specifically, as we talk about the Christmas story, what's called the incarnation, that he came to dwell among us, that he put on flesh, that God became human. But then also beyond that, there's his manifest presence that we see in our lives in the middle of circumstances, which Joseph experiences even during the pregnancy. The Lord is with us in a special way, in a unique way. What theologians call the manifest presence, that you experience it, that you know it. So how does God's presence impact your life today? Well, there are at least three implications right from this passage. And that's what we're going to talk about today. The first one is this, that God's presence, him coming in the incarnation, that what we see here, that he's Emmanuel, God with us, means that he shows us how well he knows us. The very least, what God's presence does for us is he shows us how well he knows us, which should mean one of two things for us. If you're not a follower of Jesus Christ, this should be scary because he knows everything about you. If you're a follower of Jesus Christ, this should be incredibly comforting because he knows everything about you. And he's a man, well, God with us. The apostle John, who was trying to win people to Jesus, they call him the evangelist, John, writes in John chapter 1, 
about Jesus coming in the flesh. And he calls Jesus the word in John chapter 1. And in verse 14 of John chapter 1, he says this, The word became flesh, Jesus put on skin, and made his dwelling, that word for dwelling is actually a word that's tabernacled. He tabernacled among us. The tabernacle was a place in the Old Testament where God's glory dwelt. And so God's glory came to dwell among us in the person of Jesus Christ. He tabernacled among us. We've seen his glory, the glory of the one and only who came from the Father, full of grace and truth. We talked about that a couple weeks ago when we talked about homosexuality. Grace and truth. Jesus was the embodiment of grace and truth. He was the dwelling of God's glory as he tabernacled among us. Notice that verse, though, doesn't say that Jesus came and he started to fix everything. Sorry, perfectionist, A-type personalities. It doesn't say that you had a to-do list and he had a to-do list and so you, didn't, you got yours done and now you're going to get to complete his. It didn't say, oh, I didn't get this done, so let me fix it and let me get that done for you. It didn't say, oops, you went too far right here, let me clean up their mess. You didn't think about, because you think about Jesus' life. When he came, every person wasn't healed from every disease. Every poor person didn't have their bank accounts filled. When Jesus came, they expected him to deal with the taxation. He didn't even address the taxation other than pay your taxes. The Roman oppression. He didn't overthrow Rome. Jesus didn't come and fix our mess. What John chapter 1 is saying is that Jesus came to dwell amidst our mess. He came and he dwelt among us. He tabernacled with us. His glory came and was present in the midst of our mess. And think about that from Joseph's perspective and the mess he's got going on right here right now. Because this is a mess. We romanticize this story in the way that we tell it or show it in plays or sing about it or write about it in poems or even preach about it in sermons. But try and imagine what it was like to be Joseph. Because he's pledged to be married to this woman named Mary. We read more about her in Luke chapter 1. She's not really talked about here. And we talked about what it was to be betrothed to be pledged to be married. That's why Joseph's referred to as her husband and, he's, and Mary's referred as a wife even though they're just engaged because their engagement was different than our engagement. You were considered husband and wife. You are bound to one another legally, only you hadn't consummated your marriage sexually. And so they hadn't come together. What they were in is a one-year waiting period from the time that you signed the contract, the covenant of a marriage, which is the, their engagement. And so they'd be committed to one another like husband and wife. The only way you could break it off was divorce or death. That's why there are places in the Bible you actually read about the virgin who is a widow. Because while she was engaged, betrothed, her husband died. It was considered a husband. And so that's how that's even a possibility for that to happen. And what was supposed to happen is you arrange the marriage and Mary probably had to agree to it. She didn't have to agree to it, but most likely did agree to it. Joseph would pay a bridal price for her coming to be part of his family and leaving this other family. There'd be a ceremony that they would do that would formalize those things. And then Mary would be responsible for the next year to show her faithfulness to Joseph and her purity. That was her responsibility during this time. And then Joseph was supposed to show his faithfulness and his purity and also prepare a home. And so what happens, we know in Luke chapter 1, is that while they're betrothed, an angel of the Lord comes to Mary and says, you're going to have a baby. And then she asked the question anybody would ask. She's only about 13 years old. We don't know how old Joseph is. He's probably 16, 18, maybe a little bit older than that, but somewhere in that range, a little bit older than her. 13-year-old girl, though, he has an angel of the Lord come to her and say, you're going to be pregnant. She asked the question anybody would ask. How? I've never been with a man. Verse 37, Luke chapter 1, God does the impossible. Now, he explains it more than we get here in verse 18. By the Holy Spirit. Holy Spirit's going to overshadow you. The power of the Most High is going to overshadow you. The Holy Spirit's going to impregnate you. And it's nothing sexual. That's how. But Mary, God does the impossible. That's the short summary. And then she says an amazing thing. May it be to me as you've said. 
Whatever you want, I surrender to you. Awesome story. Minor problem. Joseph wasn't there. I don't know if you noticed that in Luke chapter 1, but he wasn't part of that story. Instead, it says here in our text that Mary was found to be with child. Now, what does that mean? Well, if you read Luke chapter 1, what happens next is that, and we didn't get into this, but what happens next in Luke chapter 1 is that Mary, almost immediately after finding out from the angel that she's pregnant, doesn't go have a conversation with Joseph. She leaves and goes and visits Elizabeth, her relative, probably a cousin. And if you continue to read through Luke chapter 1, you come to verse 56. In verse 56 of Luke chapter 1, after Mary's celebrating that she's, you know, confirming this miracle of what's taking place, she's celebrating, so she stayed with Elizabeth for about three months. Then she comes back to Nazareth. And she's found here to be with child. Doesn't mean that she was discovered like she was trying to conceal it. What it means is she's now showing. You can't conceal it. And so we don't know if she and Joseph have a conversation or not, but let's put those pieces together from Joseph's perspective. You get engaged. And even if it's not as romantic as what we sometimes talk about, getting down on your knee and saying sweet things and making promises, but there's a covenant, and you, there's a, you know, she drinks some wine, he drinks some wine. They're both excited about what's taking place. There's dreams about the future. He starts to prepare a home. Then Mary leaves. She's gone for three months and comes back three months pregnant. How do you think Joseph feels? Betrayed? Confused? Hurt? Abandoned? Maybe like a fool? Maybe he feels like a lot of people feel when they've been cheated on. Was I naive? Was there somebody there in the town when she went to see Elizabeth that I didn't know about? Some old boyfriend? Some What was that? Is it my fault? Did I not do something? Have you ever been cheated on? We've all been betrayed. Have people lie to you? You think they're one thing and they actually do something else and it hurts. And that's the mess that Joseph has. And in that mess, the Lord visits him. And it's interesting how Joseph's addressed. Joseph, you're just a carpenter by position, son of David, son of the king. In other words, Joseph, not only do I know you, I know about your family. And I know your family history. And I know what it's like for you to grow up as a boy. And I know all your past experiences. And I know everything that's brought you to this moment. In fact... God knows his thoughts. Joseph would know Psalm 139. Psalm 139 says that we're all fearfully and wonderfully made. That God knows us before we're in our mother's womb. He knows every thought we have before we think the thought. He knows every word we say before it's on our tongue. He knows everything that we're going to do. He goes before us and behind us. In fact, we sang a song that talks about that. Before us and behind us. God knows you better than you know you. And if you keep reading through Matthew... What you end up finding out that the Holy Spirit reveals through Matthew is that God, he cares about you more than you care about you, which sounds funny because we're all um, narcissistic. We're all self-centered. So whether you are like arrogant or you're like super low self-esteem, it doesn't matter. You're selfish. Okay. We just manifest it in different ways. We all think a lot about ourselves. We all care a lot about ourselves. What the Bible teaches us is that God cares more about us. It says that are not two sparrows uh, sold for a penny. In other words, sparrows are basically worthless. They're not worth, they're, so it's not like I'm a sparrow hater. Please don't send me any emails. Just tell me what the Bible says. Sparrows are almost worthless. It says when they drop to the ground, God knows about it. He cares about it. How much more does he care about you? And then the passage goes on to say that not a hair falls from your head that he hasn't counted, that he doesn't know about, that he hasn't given permission to fall from your head. Now, you care about you. I bet no one here has counted the hairs on your head. In fact, I bet your mom never even counted the hairs on your head. 
And for some of you right now, it wouldn't be that much work, right? To count. And I've got less hairs than I had like last year at this time, so, but I still haven't counted them. I haven't gotten a, if there's like three, maybe I'll get to that spot. But none of you probably counted your hairs. In other words, God cares about you more than you care about you. He knows you better than you know you, and he enters into your mess. And Hebrews were told through the incarnation what happened with Jesus is that our high priest, Jesus, knows every temptation we face. For we do not have a high priest who's unable to sympathize, to feel with us our weaknesses, but we have one who's been tempted in every way just as we are, yet was without sin. So he's gone through everything that we'll ever go through. He knows what it is to be tired. He knows what it is to be frustrated. He knows what it is to be sleep deprived. He knows what it is to be hungry. He knows what it is to think. It's just one time. No one will know. He knows what it is to think about taking a shortcut. He knows what it is to want to self, self-satisfy. He knows what it is to want to escape. He knows what it is uh, to set up false gods. He knows what it is to want to seek his own glory rather than to do the will of his father. He knows, what, he knows what all of those temptations are like. He knows what Joseph's felt. He knows what it is to be betrayed. He knows what it is to be abused. He knows what it is to be misunderstood. He was without sin. Think about that for a moment. Sounds awesome. What was that like hanging out with your friends when you were 15? You think people understood Jesus? He knows every, every pain, every difficulty that we ever go through. He knows it. Not just like he knows about it because he knew that it would happen. He wrote it into history. He's experienced it. And what his presence does is he shows us how well he knows us. I was talking to my daughter the other day. She's into everything spy, my oldest daughter. And so she loves spying. She comes and spies on me, which is weird. Um, but she sneaks up. She'll be out of, out of nowhere. It's all of a sudden, there you are. Or I'll catch her. I'll be like, you're not good at this yet. You're like, yeah, there you are. I got gotcha. you. And uh, she was watching a show, a, a spy movie. And in the spy movie, there was a guy, like a mad scientist, like typical stuff that you would draw up if you're writing a comic book thing. But it's a movie that, they, that he, she was watching. And there's a guy in a lab coat. He made this creation. And he would never leave his lab. And the spies came to him and said, why won't you ever leave your lab? And he says, because I'm afraid of my creation. And then he said this statement. It's a teachable moment. He said, maybe that's why God never leaves heaven, because he's afraid of his creation. I said, Ella, time out. Uh, that is the Christmas story. God did leave creation. In fact, John chapter 1, he became part of his creation. He didn't just come visit us. He didn't just come dwell among us. He became one of us. He put on, the word became flesh. So he's still fully God, but he became fully human. And he lived among us. You know why? So that he could die for us. He wasn't afraid of us. He was afraid for us. Of his own wrath that would come upon us. And he knew. He knew us so well. He knew our greatest need, which is our sin. But he knows our thoughts. He knows the hairs on our heads. He knows our experience. And he enters into our experiences. So what does that mean for you today? Because God's presence shows us how well he knows us. But it does more than that. And only does his presence show us how well he knows us. His presence empowers us to obey him. His presence gives us the power, the courage, the boldness to obey him. Go back in the passage and see what are the first words the angel of the Lord spoke to Joseph in this dream. Verse 19, because Joseph was a righteous man, he didn't, he didn't plan on having Mary stoned, is basically what's being said in verse 19, but he was going to divorce her quietly because he had two options. He could divorce her quietly, which was just a couple witnesses, because you, the only way you could end a betrothal was through divorce, and the law allowed to divorce if someone was unfaithful, and obviously it looked like she was unfaithful, and so he could divorce her quietly, or if he was angry, if he was so hurt and he was resentful, he could have her stoned publicly. 
But because his righteousness expressed itself in compassion, he wanted to put her away quietly. It says, but after he had considered this, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream and said, Joseph, son of David, for then do not be afraid. Very literally, this is translated, stop being afraid. You're already afraid. I haven't even commanded you what to do yet. You're already afraid to obey. Do not be afraid. And then he goes on to explain, the child you're going to have, it's God with us. And he obeys, verse 24. When Joseph woke up, he did what the angel of the Lord had commanded him. He took Mary home as his wife. How was Joseph able to obey? Is it just that Joseph's a really amazing person? because he's so righteous and he's so noble? No, it's because God empowered him to do it. Because God was with him. It's the same as we see Mary. Mary, she says those amazing words. May it be to me as you've said. Whatever you want me to do. But what was it that got her to do that? It's verse 27. Greetings, Mary, you who are highly favored, greatly graced, the Lord is with you. In fact, if you start going through the Bible or start going through history, what you find out is people do incredible things by faith because they recognize God's presence in their lives because God's presence is what gives us the power to obey. And God's continually commanding us to obey him. He's commanding you to do things. I don't know if you've heard him. Sometimes our hearts get hard and we get insensitive. He's continually calling us to walk by faith, to take the next step of faith. For some of you, to begin a relationship with Jesus. Some of you have been walking with Jesus. He wants to continue to be faithful. Some of you, it's time to take a new step of faith. For some people, it has to do with giving, giving of yourself, giving of your money, giving of your time, giving of your talents. Some of you, it's forgiving to a supernatural degree. For some of you, it's being bold with sharing your faith with someone. But in all those things, he tells us he's with us. It's really interesting in Matthew, he starts out this book talking about Emmanuel, God with us. Do you know the very last words of Matthew as he speaks to his disciples, as Jesus is leaving the earth? He says, I'm with you. He says, go make disciples. Baptize them in the name of the Father, the Son, the Holy Spirit. And then verse 20. Teach them to obey everything that I've commanded you, and I will be with you. That's, that's how come you can do this. I'll be with you. You see people like last week, Bill and Judy Grimmie, we send to go share the gospel with people in Panama. Well, why don't you share the gospel here? There's people here that hear Jesus because God's calling them to do something different, and he's still with them. One time, Charles Spurgeon, I was reading about Charles Spurgeon this week. He was said to work 18-hour days. And was asked by a missionary, David Livingston, how is it that in one day you accomplish what takes two men to accomplish in one day? And Spurgeon said back, did you forget? There's two of us. See, so often we live as if God's presence is not reality. Like we talk about it at church, but is it reality in your life now? If it's reality in life now, it should be reflected in our obedience. Then we can trust him. So you think about times when you have courage. We've had boldness. I was thinking about that this week. I remember the time when I was playing football in high school. And I told you the first week, I grew up in a town in Flint, Michigan. Tried to equate that to Nazareth because it's been voted the worst place to live. Uh, even in Flint, there are bad areas. And so the whole thing's bad, right? But there are bad areas in Flint. And so I remember one time, my senior year of high school, we were going to play football in a town called Beecher. So you can look that up if you'd like to. It was known to have gangs, had problems. When we would ride on the bus on the way into town, they would tell us, put your helmet on and get down. Okay, people throw rocks and shoot and all kinds of, it was bad news. I never had that bus shot at, but that's why we were getting down, in case they'd shoot at our bus. And uh, we had a decent following as a football team, people that would travel with us when we go to different towns. Nobody came to watch us play Beecher. Like our parents didn't even come watch us play Beecher. And so I remember we were out there, we were playing, and uh, I played with some pretty uh, tough guys on the team. There was nobody as tough as my one friend, his name was Nate, Nate Adams. And uh, Nate, I had met in seventh grade. I remember meeting him in the locker room. 
He walked up, a seventh grader, looked like a grown man bodybuilder. He had muscles on top of muscles. Like there were, I was like, I didn't know that could happen to your body. Like he just said, he walked up with his shirt off in the locker room and I'm getting dressed real quick. Like, who's this guy? And uh, he would get in fight with guys in high school when he was in seventh grade, he would win. And so he's the middle linebacker on our football team. And so no matter what, I know Nate's on our team and we're playing this football game out in Beecher, gang area, bad town. We're winning 49 to seven in the fourth quarter. I'm playing defense. Beecher scores a touchdown. It's irrelevant. We're going to win the game. But this huge offensive lineman comes running up to me, gets in my face, and starts talking trash about how they just scored a touchdown on us. I was mad. And so in a normal situation, if a guy this size in Beecher came running up to me, period, I'd probably just go, here's my wallet. (laughs) See ya. Would you like anything? Anything I can do for you or your family or anyone you know? (laughs) At that moment, I grabbed him by the face mask, and I started punching him in the face. I was bold. Might have been an idiot, but I was bold. Do you know why? I got Nate. No matter what happens, Nate's there. So I can be bold. And there's referees. And how bad of a fight are you? You got equipment on. I mean, it can't be that bad, right? So I started punching. And it was fun when we watched the tape. Just flags went flying. It was awesome uh, watching the tape. Ended up meeting the guy uh, after that, but uh, we became friends. So the courage came from his presence, though. I had guys like Nate. I had a whole team of guys. What is it you would never do, but you got the Lord present, why wouldn't you do it? Why wouldn't you obey? Why wouldn't you trust him? He's the one who's going to do the work. He's the one who's going to come through. Here's why we don't do it, because we don't trust him. It's not because he's not present. He's Emmanuel, God with us. Now, if you're not a follower of Jesus, that should be scary. If you're a follower of Jesus, that should be comforting and should give you courage. Amen. Courage to obey. So what is God calling you to do? To obey. We talked about William Carey uh, the first week in this series. I was telling you about how he's the father of modern day missions and all the stuff that he went through and buried two wives, was depressed, had all kinds of problems, didn't take a break for 41 years, translated the Bible in all kinds of languages, didn't see a convert for seven years, and then was asked, how do you do this? Lo, I am with you always. He went to Matthew 28, 20. I've got a promise. God's the one who does this. He's the one who does the work. It's like Spurgeon. In fact, if you start going through the Bible, you see that with all the characters in the Bible who accomplish great things for God too. You see, even the Apostle Paul, he's terrified. He's in a town called Corinth in Acts chapter 18, which would be like modern-day Las Vegas, by the way, Sin City. And Paul, who plants churches, gets flogged, has been stoned almost to death before this moment, is scared to speak to the Corinthians. Even Paul got afraid to obey. That should bring you comfort. One night, the angel of the Lord spoke to Paul in a vision. Do not be afraid. That's what the guy says to Joseph. The angel of the Lord says to Joseph. And we'll find that as a theme. Watch this. Keep on speaking. Do not be silent. Why? Verse 10. For I am with you. About Moses. Moses in the book of Exodus. Moses accomplishes some pretty great things in the Bible. He's written down in Hebrews chapter 11. And why? Because he leads God's people out of oppression, out of bondage. It's been happening for 400 years. Now, Moses has got incredible training. He was trained in the the palace of Egypt. He's got great schooling, but he doesn't trust his talents. He doesn't trust his abilities. He says, who am I? Moses said to God, who am I? I can't speak very well if you go through the whole chapter. Who am I? That I should go to Pharaoh and bring the Israelites out of Egypt? Then the Lord tells him who. And God said, it doesn't matter who you are, Moses. I am with you. And then later in the book of Exodus, uh, we don't have this verse to put on the screen. Moses is about to lead the people into the promised land. And he says, we don't want to go unless you're going to go, God. And then God says to him, I'll go with you. Then they blow it. They don't get to go. So Moses' successor is a guy named Joshua. He knows he's inadequate. He can't do it. So what does God say to him? Joshua chapter 1, verse 9. Haven't I commanded you? Be strong and courageous. Don't lack courage. Don't be afraid. Do not be terrified. Seems like a theme. Do not be discouraged, for the Lord your God will be with you. That's why. 
Not because you're awesome, Joseph. Not Joshua, Moses, Paul. I am with you. You keep going through the Bible. You keep seeing this theme, by the way. I've seen the prophet, Jeremiah. Jeremiah is the weeping prophet he's known as. That's because he struggles with depression. If you struggle with depression, Jeremiah would be a great person to read. What does God say to Jeremiah? Do not be afraid. Seems like we keep hearing that. Do not be afraid of them, of the people you're going to speak to, for I am with you and I will rescue you, declares the Lord. I'm the one that will do it. Some of you go through dark times at Christmas time. It's a depressing time. It can be a lonely time. I love what David says in Psalm 23. Psalm 23 and verse 4. David the king, the warrior, who's killed his tens of thousands, says this. Even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, dark moments, I will fear no evil. Don't be afraid. For I'm a mighty warrior. For I am the king and I do what I want to do. No. For you, God, that's who he's speaking to, you are with me. Your rod, your discipline, and your staff, your guidance, they comfort me. Because you're with me. You're with me in the mess. You tabernacle with me. You dwell with me. You guide me. And sometimes it's painful. And sometimes it's comforting. But you guide me. And so I can have courage. I don't need to be afraid. I don't need to be terrified. I have courage. I have the empowerment. I have the ability to obey you, the boldness to obey you. Because why? Not because of my talents, not because of my ability, not because of my position, but because you are with me. And so we see what Joseph does here in this passage. He's told, do not be afraid. His name will be Emmanuel because he's God with us. That's who he will be. Verse 24 says, and Joseph obeyed. When Joseph woke up, so you get an immediacy here. When he woke up, he totally changed his plan. Before he was changing, he was planning on divorcing her quietly. He had considered this. He had made up his mind. But now, he decided he was going to obey. He did what the angel of the Lord had commanded him, and he took Mary home as his wife. And then verse 25 says it goes even further. But he had no union with her. Now, he's like 18, 20 years old. And some of you would hear that and think, she came to live in his house. They lived together. They didn't sleep together. Wow, Joseph's stronger than me. Oh, the Lord was with him. It's not about willpower. It's about who you trust. He's not trusting himself. He's trusting the Lord. And then she gave birth to a son, and he gave him, that son, the name Jesus. So he obeyed that way too. So he didn't have union with her. He takes her as his wife, and he does, God gets the name Jesus. You know why? Because God's actually his father. Joseph legally does the ceremony because he's his legal father. And he gives him the name Jesus. What did that name mean? Oh, back in verse 21, he's given the name Jesus because he will save his people from their sins. Which gives us a third implication of God's presence. God's presence makes salvation possible. Salvation is not even a possibility if God never comes to dwell among us in the incarnation. He puts on flesh and comes here. And he's fully God. And so he's able to satisfy the wrath of God. But he's fully man. So he's able to be the sacrifice for man's sin. So God's presence makes salvation possible. Here we're told because he will save his people from their sins. Verse 21. His name is Jesus. Jesus is the Greek version of the name Joshua. Um, the Hebrew name. Joshua, which means the Lord saves or Yahweh saves. The word saves there is just a general term. You'll hear it used in church culture a lot of times. Are you saved? And I remember taking a friend of mine to church uh, when I first became a Christian. And he, the guy that was talking at the front at the end of his message was talking about, you need to be saved. You need to get saved today. And then afterwards, he said, uh, 
what do I need to be saved from? Like I'm choking on a lifesaver and I'm going to die here? Or what's going on? What is he talking about being saved? And I was thinking, don't talk like that at church. Like I'm still trying to learn all the vernacular myself and was a new Christian. Like I thought the place would fall down if he did that. That's saved means like that. You can be saved from calamity, saved from disaster, saved from disease. Throughout the Bible, we see this. Saved from difficulty, saved from a storm, saved from all kinds of bad stuff. But the ultimate calamity and the majority of the time in the New Testament, when it talks about being saved, it's talking about the worst calamity, is you're saved from God. You're saved from his wrath. Hebrews tells us in Hebrews chapter 10, and verse 31, that it is a dreadful thing to fall into the hands of the living God because of our sin. God's holy. He is righteous. He is just. He is perfect, which means he cannot stand in perfection, which is us. We are objects of his wrath. We can't be in his presence because we are not holy, because we are sinful for all of sin and fall short of the glory of God. Every person ever has sinned. And so what does that mean? That means we need a savior, someone to rescue us, deliver us, save us. The very fact that Jesus is called savior, savior implies for all of us that we need to be saved. Saved from our sin. Saved from God's wrath. And that's what Jesus came to do. So everyone else that was named Joshua up until this point in history pointed to the savior. Jesus has the name, Joshua, and it's because he is the Savior. I save is what his name means. I came to rescue you. But the only people that will be saved are the ones that turn to me as their Savior because people turn to all kinds of different things for a Savior. And Jesus is the Savior that saves us from our sins. See, most of us are trying to find a Savior from our circumstances. Most of us are trying to find somebody that will make life easier. Most of us are trying to have less taxes, less Roman oppression, less difficulty. Get the disease to go away. Jesus knows you so well. He knows your greatest need. You need to be saved from your sin. And so I want to ask you today, simple question, but the most important question anyone will ever ask you. Have you been saved from your sin? Jesus makes salvation a possibility. His presence coming here and dwelling among us and being tempted in every way just as we're tempted but not sinning makes it possible so that when he goes to the cross and he dies that he can die for your sin. See, the Christmas story is not really about a stable. It's not a nice story that we just get to tell. It's actually about a cross. It says it right here at the very beginning. You'll call him Jesus because he'll save his people from their sins. That means he's going to the cross. He's God with us. Not just that he's with us. He's God. So when he goes to the cross and he dies for our sins, he's able to die for everyone's sins, not just one person. Have you accepted him? Have you asked him to save you from your sins? Because the Bible says, if you believe that he died for your sins, and you believe he rose from the dead, that if you call upon him to be your Lord, if you call upon him to be present in your life, then you will be saved. You'll be rescued from your sins. You'll experience forgiveness. Let me say something. Your presence here matters today. You don't know Jesus as your Savior? And that's why I'm saying this. To you, God brought you to this place today for a reason. And I'm saying this for you today. Some people here have already trusted Jesus. Oh, I hope they're reflecting on whether or not they have comfort or conviction from the fact that God knows everything about them and they have courage to take the next step of obedience. But your step of obedience is to trust Jesus Christ to be your Savior. So if you need to trust Jesus as your Savior, then you can do that. I'm going to pray a prayer in a moment, and I invite you to pray it with me. And let me tell you what the prayer is going to be. It's going to be acknowledging sin before God, which we all have sin before God. Everybody can do that, whether you believe in Jesus or not. But then based on belief in Jesus, that he died for our sins, he didn't just come in a manger, but he died on a cross. And he rose from the dead. You'd ask Jesus to be your Lord and to be your Savior. 
And if you want to do that, you can pray that with me. And so we're all just going to bow our heads, close our eyes. And you can pray quietly in your heart, whatever words you want to pray. But I'm going to pray some words. If you want to pray the exact same words, you can. There's nothing magical about the words that I'm saying. But it's that you're calling upon Jesus to be your Savior because you believe that he died for your sins. You believe that he rose again. And if you'd like to do that, you can pray with me right now. As I admit sin, ask Jesus to be Savior. You can just pray these words. If you need someone to pray some words for you, I'll just pray these words. Dear Heavenly Father, and just as you sit there in your seat or watch on video or, or in the theater 14, another room, just say, Dear Heavenly Father, I admit my sin. And maybe for you, you even want to admit specific sins. He knows. He already knows. You're not going to surprise him with anything. He knows the worst thoughts you've ever had, much less the things you've done. So maybe out of conviction, you admit some of those sins. And I need someone to forgive me of those sins. And I believe your son Jesus died for those sins.